Hello and welcome to The Stack. On this week's show, we take an in-depth look at fashion criticism and its cultural importance. Plus, the latest book by travel writer Julia Cook on the glamorous and courageous Pan Am stewardesses. And finally, we speak to the CEO of a media company that is all about empathy. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Coming up on the show, we speak with Julia Cook on her new book, Come Fly the World, The Women of Pan Am at War and Peace, and Jason Y. Lee, founder of Jubilee Media. But first on the show, I had the pleasure to speak with Francesca Granata, who just published a book on the cultural importance of fashion criticism. It's about time that fashion critics receive the same importance and praise as film, theater, or book critics. In Fashion Criticism and Anthology, Francesca reviews some of the best pieces of fashion criticism, from names such as Oscar Wilde to more recent ones, such as Robin Gibbon from the Washington Post. Here is my chat with Francesca. Fashion criticism was not given its due, and it was perhaps not taken as seriously as other field of criticism. As you mentioned, one of the reasons is that, um, for instance, the Pulitzer Prize did not uh, give the prize of criticism to a fashion critic until the 2006, when it gave it to Robin Given of the Washington Post. And the Pulitzer Prize, of course, uh, is very prestigious and it has given prizes in all fields of criticism repeatedly, ranging from food to architectural criticism prior to that. So, it definitely was a field ripe for greater acknowledgement and greater really research. So I was very excited to be able to do this anthology and show how important fashion criticism is and diverse and how much is it contributed to cultural criticism more generally. I mean, and, and it's a proper kind of historical look as well. I mean, I think one of the first kind of articles from Oscar Wilde. I mean, that's fascinating, right? That, that's really interesting. Yes. yes, I went back to the late 19th century. That's when I started the book because it was a time when the fashion press really boomed both in the UK and the US. I particularly look at fashion criticism in just two spaces. And um, Oscar Wilde, of course, published on fashion in newspapers, but he also edited a woman's magazine, the Woman's Ward from 1887 to 1889. And he really did take fashion seriously. He was, of course, very witty in his writing. So we see from the very beginning, fashion was taken seriously and fashion criticism was um, you know, a proper field of criticism. And then in 20th century, it really, there's much greater variety and number of critics. I was really interested in finding this really little known little magazine from the 19 teens. It was started in 1915. It was an avant-garde magazine. It was started by a woman, Louise Norton, um, with her husband. And um, it was a satirical uh, magazine called Vogue. Rogue, sorry, which was a pan on Vogue, of course. And um, Louis Norton, under the pseudonym of Dame Rogue, wrote these very funny pieces 
columns called Philosophic Fashions. And in one of them, she really started to advocate it, advocating for the undoing of gendered fashion. And that was like a hundred years before that's become something that's been talked about widely. So yeah, fashion criticism was also a place for really early feminist writing by both Oscar Wilde, Louis Norto, and later on in the New Yorker, which from its very beginning in 1925 had a fashion critic, Louis Long. So it's really an interesting field to study. And Francesca, I mean, we did mention Oscar Wilde there, but give us a little preview of some of the names there, or some of the fashion critics that we can see on your book. Yes, I mean, there is the names that we all might be, or at least people interested in fashion might be already familiar with. So again, Vanessa Friedman, Robin Given, uh, Guy Trebay, and Judith Therma from The New Yorker, as well as, of course, Sarah Moore from Vogue. But there's also, surprisingly, people who have written fashion criticism that are not necessarily taught as fashion critics. Susan Sontag wrote a piece of fashion criticism for Vogue US in the 1970s. We have people that are known as fiction writers like Angela Carter, uh, the British surrealist writers, also wrote beautiful fashion criticism for what's now the New Statesman, as well as Eve Babitz, the LA writer, has also written fashion criticism for Vogue. So it's really a field that um, many writers have entered at some point of their career, which is, of course, very excited. And all these pieces I was able to include in the anthology. Absolutely. And your book is, is a great proof of that as well. And I was going to ask, I mean, what makes a good fashion critic? Because you mentioned that actually it can be quite political fashion criticism as well. I think you have to be really in tune with society. Even today, I mean, I love reading about the latest collections as well, but I like when people look at the politicians' clothes, what that means as well, kind of the behind the scenes. There's, there's so many interesting elements to that as well. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to say what makes a good critic. Of course, the ability to be critical and evaluate is important, but... Um, especially starting in the 60s, we started also seeing a lot of criticism engaging more and more with the issue of gender. As I said, feminist, uh, feminism entered fashion criticism and also uh, it started mediated and opening up ideas of beauties and norms of beauty, especially in the last 20 years. And I think that's probably one of the way that fashion criticism can be and has been very influential. And... Um, it has negotiated different ideas of femininity and um, also negotiated different understanding of race throughout the 20th century and certainly up to the contemporary time. And, uh, but ultimately, perhaps what makes a good fashion critic is also being a good writer like any other fields of writing. Uh, so there is that too. When it comes to fashion criticism, do you see a big difference from the United States where, where I believe you're based, but I know mm -hmm. you're Italian, you come from a European background. Is there a big difference or do you think especially today they're quite aligned in a way? It's hard to say because when it comes to the 21st century, media becomes transnational. So like I have an example for instance of Anya Cronenberg who started this fantastic a journal called Best Toy, and she's Swedish. She writes in English, uh, 
Bestow is in English, but she's based in Paris. So I think this geographical boundary started to break down, but there's still, I think, national, a way of looking at fashion. Somebody, one of the author we interviewed, Julie Thurman claimed that fashion criticism actually in the context of the US didn't take hold as early as in France. And she claims it had to do, of course, because in France, fashion has always been incredibly important to the national identity of the nation, but she claims it's also that to do with the puritanical um, heritage of the United States. But as of now, I think we do have a lot of fashion critics writing in English and um, in the US, of course, the UK, but across the world because of this transnational fashion media, because of course, English has become this lingua franca. I mean, we're both not from English speaking country. And here we are talking in English. Here we are talking in English, exactly. It's quite mad. Even though I I wish I could talk with you in perfect Italian. There's an interesting thing about fashion. I mean, you were mentioning how some attitudes are changing fashion criticism. I personally, just looking at some of the newspapers, I kind of feel that. I do feel, for example, that the New York Times or even Philippe São Paulo in Brazil, they now are adding fashion stories, not only on the kind of at the back page of the paper. Do you know what I mean? Sometimes they are they, they jump to page three. Do you know what I mean? Or they have more preeminence in a way. Uh, I think that's a good development, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there is so much more fashion criticism being produced in the 21st century and people have really started to see its importance, right? It's, um, I think it was Robin Given that gave a great quote to us and she was like, you know, fashion really helped us define we think is beautiful and we put a great value on beauty so we should really put a great value on fashion criticism and um, I think as you said earlier fashion criticism also became intertwined with um, the political sphere and there is more and more written about the way politicians dress and what that means and it has this has been kind of it's taken apart in the press in very interesting ways. I mean, Vanessa Friedman does that at the New York Times or being given at the Washington Post and um, so on and so forth. So I think it's really started to occupy a very important role in the political sphere, the social sphere as well. But it's also interesting when I was doing my um, research in the passion criticism of the past, I also saw that fashion critics as early as the 50s or 60s were writing about what politicians dressed and tried to make sense of what that meant and what they were trying to convey. So yeah, again, fashion criticism has a history as well, but it definitely has bloomed in the 21st century. That was Francesca Granata, author of Fashion Criticism, an anthology. The book is out now. From Fashion to Travel, a new book that caught out my attention. It's called Come Fly the World, The Women of Pan Am at War and Peace, written by travel writer and journalist Julia Cook. The book details the lives of the stewardesses of the iconic Pan American Airways between 1966 and 1975, a period which some describe as the golden age of flying. The book is a treat. I spoke with Julia about it and also how it's to be a travel writer when traveling itself these days is so difficult. I I had been writing a lot about art and architecture 
um, and design and, and travel, uh, living in New York and Manhattan. And I saw that the Pan Am Historical Foundation was going to host an event at the TWA terminal, which I, I'm sure some of your readers are familiar with. It's this beautiful, beautiful relic of the 1950s jet age. It's gorgeous. Um, and I'd always wanted to tour it. And I went and I met these two former stewardesses who were just absolutely fascinating. They were so smart. Um, they were really sophisticated. They, um, the way they talked about the world was just, it was the, with this intimate knowledge. Um, they talked about these, you know, global capitals as if they knew all of the back roads, all of the, all, all the best things to do everywhere. And they talked about geopolitics and history with, with the same kind of authority and intimacy. And I just wanted to know everything about them. And, and I mean, and their job, it meant a lot, actually, for women at the time, because, you know, of course, to be honest, I had this image that it was such a glamorous job, especially during the period you cover in the book, but also even from a feminist perspective as well, because, you know, it, it's women that they, they could travel. They were very exciting jobs. You know, they, you know, they didn't want to just stay at home or just do kind of more menial jobs. So it, I love that perspective you put in the book as well. Absolutely. You know, it, it's so funny that, you know, I think it's easy for us to forget that in that era, stewardessing, working on airplanes, and I use the term stewardessing for, for a reason, you know, I, I had initially called them flight attendants, but these women, a couple of them actually corrected me and said, no, dear, we were stewardesses. Um, because I think they felt like it, it was, um, it's historically accurate. First of all, they were not flight attendants yet. That wasn't the term that was used in the 50s and 60s. And I think that they felt that the term itself pegs them to the job, which was incredibly, incredibly sought after, you know, only three to 5% of candidates um, who applied for jobs on, on the airlines got the job. It was harder to get a job on an airline as a stewardess than it was to get into Harvard than it is today to get into Harvard. Um, so, you know, it, it was in 1968, for example, there's a, a, a citation in the book um, that it was the most, the number one job listed by um, women graduating from high school because it was a job that allowed women to, to go and travel and see the world and see who they could be in different places and, and explore. Um, but they didn't have to break ranks with what was acceptably feminine in the era to get that. So they could have all of this access and these um, exciting experiences and meet interesting people that they never would have met just at home working as um, a secretary or a nurse or a librarian, which were kind of what a lot of the women told me they felt like their acceptable roles were. And in some stories, uh, you know, mentioning the book, it was quite, you know, quite a brave job as well, because they were involved kind of in wars as well, transporting soldiers. So it was not just kind of, you know, glamorous serving food. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. That was one of one of the biggest surprises to me. One of the things that made me really want to write the book initially was that, um, you know, when I started interviewing the women, they told me a lot about the more the more glamorous stories. So they told me about flying royalty and diplomats and all, all of what you would expect um, in, of, of stewardessing in the era. But they also told me about, um, yes, flying soldiers. Uh, off to the Vietnam War, uh, they told me about coming under mortar fire in Vietnam or, you know, um, rifle fire in the Biafran War in, in Nigeria. Um, they told me about a lot of really dramatic and um, really consequential experiences. And I started to see that, you know, what they were doing was they were performing a much more, a role that we today would call public diplomacy. They were really expected to represent the United States on BOAC, for, for some of your readers. They were expected to represent um, Britain. And, you know, they were, um, they were thrust into these incredibly dramatic and, um, you know, really dangerous 
situations. Um, this was the era when hijacking was very common. Um, it was also the era, uh, it was the middle of the Cold War. They were flying in and out of Moscow. So, you know, they, they were, they had a lot of really, um, really dramatic and dangerous experiences and, and they, were, they were expected to perform. And how fascinating that for the research of your book, you had the first-hand experience because you spoke to some of them who are, you know, who are still around. So what else have you done? First of all, how was it to meet, to meet them? That must be so fascinating. You must have I mean, incredible stories to tell. Do they miss the, their time as, as stewardesses? <laughs> it was really fascinating to, to talk to them. Um, and yes, a lot of them do, uh, in part because, you know, there's, there is a lot of nostalgia for the era. It was a more glamorous time of, of travel. It was a time when um, the world was not quite as known as it is today. Things were a little bit more elusive and a little more, a little harder to, to pin down, I think. So a lot of them do have a lot of nostalgia for that moment in their lives. They were also in their 20s. Who doesn't, once they're 70, have some nostalgia for being 20? But, you know, talking to them was just, it was, it was one of the great joys of the book and, and one of the great challenges, too, to kind of, you know, chart through someone's memories to, to figure out the best way of, of representing what someone experienced. Um, the book focuses on five women in particular, um, three in a lot of depth. And I think I had, I had many dozens of interviews with them. Um, and I, I traveled to all of their homes and spent time with them. And, um, and it was really incredible to be able to talk to them about this period of their lives over and over and over again. I think they got really sick of telling me <laughs> the same story, like six different times. But, um, but you know, one of my big priorities for this book was that it, it be all factual. I didn't want it to, um, you know, I, I wanted it to read as fluidly and as, you know, interestingly as, as possible, but I wanted it to be completely uh, fact-based. And so um, we had a lot of interviews. <laughs> No, that, that's fascinating. And I think even, even today, I think, I mean, it's completely different from that era in your book, but even I was uh, watching more recently the flight attendant, the series. I don't know if you've seen that. That's, that's quite fun. But I, I think there's still certain appeal to it uh, in a way, but it's very different these days, right? You know, it, it, it is very different these days, but, but the thing is, there's a quote in the book from a woman, um, and you know, the context is total, totally different. The context was that this was a, a, a labor lawsuit. Um, so she, the, but the quote is that, um, that she said that this, this woman said, I thought it was really interesting that flight attendant, that stewardesses had an image of being all docile. And she said, in reality, it's the reality couldn't be further from the truth. All the women that I know took the job because they were too curious and interesting to sit around uh, in a nine to five job getting cramps in their shoulders. And I think that's really true. I think the job uh, then and now really offers a, a really high degree of flexibility um, and access. And you can, you can do different things and meet different people and, and the challenges are always changing. So I think that's true then and now. And Julia, it's a fascinating book, but I would like to ask you something else as well. I know that you are a travel writer. I mean, with the pandemic and everything, you can't travel. How, how are you feeling? I mean, are you optimistic that things will change and you might be able to kind of, I don't know, travel again? I, I think we'll always come back to travel at some point. Um, I am going bonkers, obviously. I, I would love to, to hit the road as soon as possible, but um, waiting to feel safer about it, waiting for numbers to, to drop and for everyone to be, you know, be really safe. I can't wait to, to get back out there. That was Julia Cook, author of Come Fly the World, The Women of Pan Am at War and Peace. The book is out now. 
And finally on the show, I spoke to Jason Y. Lee, founder and CEO of Jubilee Media, perhaps mostly known for its incredibly interesting videos, such as the popular show Middle Ground, which brings together people with different views on politics, religion, sexuality, but it's never about shouting, but empathy. The ever-expanding company is also planning a feature film later this year and some physical products as well. I spoke to Jason to tell me more about Jubilee. Jubilee Media, we are a digital media company that wants to create a new culture of empathy. So with all the content that we make, primarily on YouTube, we want to bring people together, uh, have discourse, have dialogue, and remind us that we often have far more in common than we might think, just as humans and as people. And I started this company, actually, the first version of Jubilee started almost 10 years ago. And it was while I was a consultant in New York, I never really had an ambition to start a media company. But my 22nd birthday happened to coincide with the Haiti earthquake. And that day, you know, it wasn't like, bing, 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 you should start a media company. It was, hey, you have to do something about it. Why are you so blessed? And, you know, you're seeing all of this kind of need. So I decided to go to New York subway stop to sing and raise $100 for Haiti. And that's when I made my very first video. Within a week, we had 10,000 views and raised thousands of dollars for Haiti. I think that's when the light bulb went off for me that, you know, we can really use stories and media to do a lot of good. And then soon thereafter, I started a nonprofit called Jubilee Project. And in 2017, I launched Jubilee Media. So in a lot of ways, we've been doing this work for a long time. And in other ways, we've been just starting to make the content we are doing now only over the last four or five years now. And what I like about Jubilee as well, because, you know, you discuss topics like politics, racism, you know, sometimes pretty controversial topics that sometimes you see in the media, which can can become a little bit, you know, people fighting with each other, a lot of negativity. But for somehow you guys managed to do that in a very positive way. Was that your intention? Because there's been a period, I mean, not only in the US, but I think everywhere where everything needs to be a confrontation. You know what I mean? I do. I think in a lot of ways, you know, we were born out of the 2016 U.S. election when it felt like so partisan, so contentious, and felt like on every divide, the world was getting more and more divided. And in a lot of ways, especially for Gen Z and millennials, we wanted to model what empathy looked like. And for us, empathy doesn't look like everyone's going to agree on every issue, but rather we could have real discourse and dialogue about important things that matter to us and not necessarily come to an agreement or a conclusion, but we can actually see why someone else might think differently. And that's a lot of ways what empathy should look like and means. And that's why we think there's such a huge opportunity and white space for us to make a lot more content and do a lot of good here. In terms of your content, what's your, you know, demographic? Because, you know, perhaps, as you say, the, the generations that, you know, I'm 34, I can still enjoy that. But I know it's a little bit younger, right? Yes, yes. Um, I'm 33, so I'm there right there with you. I, I think we just straddle millennial and the Gen Z audience. So I think our biggest demographic is 17 to 24. But then we've got obviously 24 to 30 and 30 to 37. But we're really proud and really excited because we're about 50% Gen Z, 50% uh, millennial. I would say we're 50%, you know, slightly leaning female, but like maybe 60% female, 40% male. And almost across every divide, we see a pretty reasonable and pretty strong split even internationally we're actually about you know 40 international 60 domestic in the united states so one thing that i'm really excited about is when we're thinking about our audience it's not one group of people 
It's not you know all men who think this way or all all uh, East Coasters who think this way. Rather, we actually see that a great you know spectrum of people are watching our content, and we see that as a really good sign. You mentioned the international aspect of Jubilee Media as well. If I may say, I mean, besides the United States, of course, which other countries are you know quite kind of big consumers of of Jubilee Media content? Yeah, we're seeing you know all sorts of different places. Even India, uh, a lot of uh, Southeast Asia. Um, we're seeing a lot of love in Australia, Russia, Germany. And what we're finding is that a lot of the topics that we talk about, even though they often feel quite domestic, that the roots of them are quite international. And that's one thing that we're really excited about. Slowly, we're actually starting to roll out uh, Jubilee in different languages. So we're about to launch Jubilee in Espanol, so that folks who are you know, native Spanish speakers can actually listen in their native language and understand and kind of be able to interact in a way that they feel is really comfortable for them. And what about when it comes to the business plan? I mean, is a source of income perhaps still the traditional advertising or, or how are you guys kind of dealing with that? Certainly one of the main components of revenue for us is advertising and sponsorships. And we've been really lucky that, you know, I think now more than ever brands are recognizing that they need to partner with authentically uh, empathetic companies. And when they do so, especially Gen Z and millennial will reward them and honor them. Right. So we're trying to do really, you know, not just a plug and play model, but really integrated partnerships with our brands. Uh, but not only that, but we are rolling out our own products. So clothing, uh, we've got hard goods on the way, uh, experiences. And, you know, one day we want to be seen as the Disney for empathy. That When you are interacting with whether it's content or product or experiences, you think, oh, yeah, there's a very good chance that Jubilee's behind this because this is something that they I don't want to say we're experts of empathy, but certainly something that we're thinking about day in and day out. It's interesting to hear about the merchandising because, you know, I, I do think for some, somehow it kind of makes the brand even stronger when you also have, you know, in a physical format, you know, being that, you know, a t-shirt or a cap or whatever. Totally. And I think that clothing is really exciting, but it's just the beginning because what we find is that when people watch our content, the biggest question that they ask is how do I get involved? Or how do I have conversations like this? To the point that there are clubs that are popping up all around high schools and colleges where they have their own middle ground club or spectrum club. And every week they'll have discussions that kind of mirror and mimic our formats. So now we're trying to develop product that allows them to do so better, whether it's within schools or even just at home with your friends. I think people recognize that, you know, sometimes we need to have these really uh, different Sometimes difficult, but sometimes entertaining conversations that learn, help us to learn about ourselves and other people more. And I also heard, I mean, you, you also uh, is about to have your first feature film as well, right? Can you we tell us a bit more about that? Sure. Um, one of the visions of Jubilee was always that we would start in digital, but eventually that we would grow uh, our content and our audience to exist in film and television. So we want to be on your television in your living room, but we want to be on the silver screen. So we've got a film, it's called Accepted, and it's about a small school in Louisiana. It's tackling race, it's tackling education, it's tackling equity in a lot of really interesting ways in the United States. And we're excited to, to share that it's going to be premiering this summer at a big film festival to be announced soon. So hopefully the, this film will be one that you'll hear about and that people will eventually get to see and watch. That was Jason Wiley, founder and CEO of Jubilee Media.
Well, that's it for this week's show. My thanks to our editor, Nora Hall. And if you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fpnmonaco.com. And remember, you can subscribe to the show at monaco.com or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and SoundCloud, among others. Before we go, a little song for you. This is Club 8 with Travel. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. I travel far. I am nowhere near anywhere I intended to go. So back me up before the heart attack. This world has in store for me. Voices fall.